0: privilege to be here with you. Um, glad to fill in for Keith and um, just glad to worship with you to open God's Word together. Our passage this morning is Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Hear the, the Word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering him. This is God's word for you, his people. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning, that you would breath, uh, bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your gospel. We pray that your, your spirit would be among us, help us to understand your word, to take it to heart and to practice it in our lives, that you would be glorified. It's in your son's name and for his glory that we pray, amen. Stanford University did a famous experiment in the 1960s and 70s called the Marshmallow Experiment. They took a group of children, and they would offer them a, a treat, a marshmallow, a piece of candy, a pretzel, and they would say, if, if, the, ch- if the children could resist eating the treat for a time, after a while, they would get two treats. So it was an experiment testing whether the children could resist. Could they hold out with the promise of something better? Could they resist that temptation? The ones who did resist went on to report better life outcomes, you know, ended up living better lives. Some of us never reached this stage of being able to delay gratification. Uh, it's hard to resist, you know, when there's something in front of us that we desire, there's something that we, that we want, it's, it's hard to say, you know, I'm going to resist this with the promise that maybe something will be better, you know, because we're not necessarily told that, like these children were, that if we resist, there will be something better. So we can be tempted to take what we can get right now. Uh, I mean, that's where the phrase comes from, the the saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? You might as well take what you can get. Um, We see this sort of temptation all around us, the temptation to take what we can get. And it comes in all sorts of uh, forms that the culture uh, throws at us in terms of um, sexual morality, uh, the the temptation to cheat or to do underhanded things, to get ahead at work, uh, to... You know, just try to get away with things when we think no one is looking. Um, these various forms of temptation, you know, they take different forms, but they all result, result from the fall. The, the effects of the fallen world. Uh, and sometimes it's the world itself that tempts us. Sometimes it's our own sinful nature. Sometimes, as in today's passage, it's because we have an enemy who opposes us and tries to get us to fall. And that brings us to today's passage because this is a, this is a, about temptation as a fact of life in a fallen world. And Jesus, because he became incarnate, he left heaven, he, he submitted, humbled himself to live among us in this fallen world, he had to endure temptation just as we do because it's part of living in a fallen world. And um, so... As we respond, uh, as we see Jesus respond to this uh, temptation, uh, we could learn, uh, we could take a few uh, lessons away from it, a few applications. But what what I want to focus on is how this passage tells us about Jesus' identity as the Son of God, the one who came to accomplish God's mission on earth. And in order to do that, we're going to look at the who, the what and the why uh, in this passage. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and why it matters for us. So first, who he is. The first thing to notice about this passage is is where it's situated. It comes right after Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, verses uh, 13 to 17. And this is a most unusual baptism uh, because we can see that When Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened, the spirit descended on him in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven spoke, saying, This is my beloved Son, with with whom I am well pleased. Now, John the Baptist had baptized many people before this, and he baptized many people after this, and this never happened. This is the only time where there was such a display. The spirit descending the father speaking audibly from heaven so if you were there it must have been an amazing thing to witness but also a very confusing thing because Jesus at this point was basically an unknown he came from an obscure town he had lived life in obscurity probably you know apprenticing with his father as a carpenter nobody really knew who he was and yet he gets baptized and there's this incredible spectacle and so if you were there and you witnessed it you must have thought who is this man that this would happen and then in our passage you have him led away into the wilderness where he is personally confronted with satan again this doesn't happen to most people we don't have the satan uh, we don't have the devil you know coming and confronting us uh, personally uh, in a way where you know it's this this sort of challenge and Jesus not only does battle with the devil but he has this incredible command of scripture and he resists even at this point where he is he's weakened from his time in the wilderness he resists and and defeats the devil so again if you were to hear about this you must wonder who is this that he can do that and uh, and immediately after our passage Jesus inaugurates his public ministry with a message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who is this who claims to preach with such authority, to tell the Jews, God's chosen people, that they must repent? And what does it mean that the kingdom of of heaven is at hand? So it was a very big open question at this point regarding Jesus's identity. Who was he? The Gospels are dedicated to answering that question for us and indeed the rest of the New Testament and the the rest of the Bible. But we can look at this passage and it wants to tell us also who Jesus is. And it does that by picking up on the Father's announcement at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved son. So that's what Jesus heard right before he was led off into the wilderness. And... That is then what uh, Satan picks up on. He says, if you are the son of God. So that's the question. Is he the son of God? And what does that mean? So it's, it's interesting to note that son of God is, is actually used elsewhere in the Bible for other people. Um, Adam was the first Son of God. He's called that in Luke's genealogy of Jesus. And uh, Israel in Hosea 11 is called God's son. Israel as a whole the, in the, the whole nation. So what then does it mean to be the son of God in that sense? Well, Adam and Israel both had a unique origin and also a unique mission. So Adam was God's special creation, the first man made in his image, the first and only creature made in God's image. And his job was to rule creation in God's uh, place, to represent God to the, to the world. It was meant to be that, that if a creature or someone wanted to know what is God like, he could look to Adam because Adam was made in God's image. So Adam was meant to reflect uh, God in his makeup and also in the way that he worked, the way that he operated in the world. Similarly, Israel has a unique origin. It was a, a nation that was constituted specially by God, called from among the nations at the Exodus, and God placed his name upon them. And they also had a mission. They were to represent God to the world and, all, and indeed to, to bring the world to God, to proclaim his name and call people to repent and turn to the God of Israel. So in a similar way, Jesus has a unique origin and a unique mission, a special mission. He is from eternity. He is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven and became incarnate for our sakes. And he has a special mission. He represents God to the world. He proclaims the gospel. He calls people to come and be reconciled to God. So he picks up on this theme of these previous sons of God, Adam and Israel, but he does so in a way that exceeds them. He succeeds where they fail, and we'll pick this up again in a little bit. So as Jesus begins his earthly ministry... God reminds him, God the Father reminds him, you are my beloved son. And so Satan attacks at that very point. In verse 3, he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. In verse 6, he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And in verse 9, he says, he points to the kingdoms of the world and he says, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So Satan is picking up on this idea of the, Jesus being the Son of God. And he's say, basically saying, you know, if you're the Son of God, prove it. If you're the Son of God, you must have privileges of some sort. You can exercise those privileges. You can show yourself to be who you claim to be. He, he is questioning you know, by saying, if you are the son of God, he's, he's casting doubt on that statement, right? As if the father was lying or if he's somehow holding out on Jesus saying, you know, look, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to endure the suffering in the, in the wilderness. And this, is, this has been Satan's tactic from the very beginning. When he came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he questioned what God had just said. He said, did God really say? Did he actually say what you think he said? And of course, he distorted what God had said. He says, did did he really say you're not supposed to eat from any tree from the garden? Well, no, that's not what he said. But he planted that seed of doubt. And so he comes to, to Jesus and does the same thing, casting doubt on what the Father had just said. So then the question was, would Jesus believe? Whom would he believe? Would he believe what he had heard from his father, or would he believe Satan? Well, Jesus believed God, and he obeyed. And this is what showed him to be the true, the ultimate, the final son of God, the one that Adam and Israel anticipated and pointed to in a shadowy way, but which Jesus fulfills completely because he's given this special mission and he succeeded. He believed God in a way that Adam and Israel failed to do. And he obeyed rather than exercising his privileges as the son of God. As the true son of God, he came to do the will of his father in saving God's people. So, That's who Jesus is. Next is what he's doing. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't just go straight to the cross? I mean, especially after this amazing spectacle at his baptism, wouldn't that be the time? You know, seize the opportune moment. There's just been this incredible display. He's been announced as the Son of God. If all that he came to do was die for our sins, why not go right then? Why not go straight to the cross? Why did he have to endure everything in between? Why preach and teach for three years? Why suffer? Why not just go straight there? Well, we, we can often tend to focus on Christ's death on the cross as being the, the central part of his work. And indeed, it is very important, but it's not the end. It's not that he only came to die for us. He also came to live for us. So those three years in between, and indeed his entire life, matter for us as well. His his life, the rest of his life, uh, are part of what theologians call the humiliation of Christ. Meaning not that he was embarrassed for some reason, but that he humbled himself, as Paul says in in Philippians 2. He humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He endured what they call the miseries of this life, which is really just the sort of everyday things that we endure as part of life in a fallen world. Brokenness, disease, frustration, disappointment, suffering, sickness, death, all of that, he endured it all because he came as a true man and he endured everything that we as men and women endure. And these temptations are part of that. It's part of his living for us in addition to dying for us. So let's take a closer look at these temptations. They'll help us to see some more of the contrast between Jesus as the, the true son of God and, the, and Adam and Israel. So in the first temptation, Satan invites Jesus to conjure up some bread. It's not an unreasonable re- request, right? It, it had been a long time. Jesus had gone without bread or water for 40 days. It says he was, he was hungry. And one of the great understatements, I think, in the Bible so why not conjure up some bread? You are, you are hungry. What's, what's the harm? You have the ability, right? If you are the son of God, you can make bread. Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Elsewhere, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. It says in John 4.34. He's saying that food is good and important and necessary, but it's not the most important thing. Jesus' true sustenance was obeying his father, doing the will of his father to serve his own needs, even for something that makes sense, something reasonable like conjuring up some bread would be to repudiate, to reject the mission that he had been given by his father. And as the true son of God, he refused to do that. Next, Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. This was probably the southeast corner of the uh, temple mount, where uh, they had this giant platform that built around the temple. And at the southeast corner of the city, it dropped sharply away to valleys on each side. So at that corner, it would have been a, a pretty big drop. And Satan takes him up there and says, you know, why don't you jump off and let the angels catch you? Now, this is not something that would tempt me very much. I don't know about you. But uh, so it seems strange as a temptation. But really, the idea is it was, again, striking his identity as supposedly the son of God. He's saying, if you really are the son of God, then prove it by Demonstrating your importance. If you are the son of God, God will surely not let you fall to your death. So why not prove it to yourself? Prove it to me, Satan says. Why not, why, why labor in obscurity? Why not unveil your glory right now by showing how important you are? as the Son of God. But Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus had just heard from his Father that he was, he is, the Son of God. He did not need further confirmation from that, and he certainly did not need to put God to the test in order to do that. And finally, Satan takes Jesus up on a mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world. All these I will offer you, uh, I will give you if you will worship me. Now this seems like a strange offer. How, you know, How can Satan claim to have the kingdoms of the world that he could give them to Jesus? But there is a sense that Satan does have power over this world that he, he is called the prince of this world. He has some sort of authority given to him by God who can take it away at will. So it's not exactly a hollow offer. And it's not, even, again, not even a, a, an unreasonable offer. As the Son of God, Jesus has the right to rule. The kingdoms of the world can and should belong to Jesus. The temptation was, how are you going to get there? Satan Satan says, the, the path that you're on is filled with suffering. Look at where you are now. God has abandoned you, left you alone for 40 days and nights in the wilderness with nothing to sustain you. It's not going to get any better than this. At the end, you might get the crown, but is it worth it? Why not take the shortcut, take the easy way out, worship me now, and you can have the kingdoms of the world. But this offer was a a call to circumvent the plan of God, to go his own way, to say that he knows better than God does, the one who planned it all. So... Jesus knows that God alone is to be worshipped, and so he refuses to worship Satan, and he refuses to submit to Satan's plan. Instead, he submits to the will of his father. Three times, Jesus quotes scripture, in response to Satan's temptations. He goes to Deuteronomy in each case. Sometimes when we're reading the Bible, we want to figure out, what does this passage mean for me? A lot of times the Bible will kind of tell you that when the people respond to something, they'll say, you know, God has visited his people, or this is, you know, something, something that gives you a clue what you're supposed to take away. This passage doesn't have a line like that. Exactly. So, A lot of people will come to this passage and look at it as a sort of example. Uh, We see uh, Jesus confronted by the devil, and he responds by quoting Scripture. And so we say, okay, well, we are supposed to memorize Scripture and deploy it in times of spiritual uh, uh, battle. And that's what we take from this passage. Now, there's some truth That We ought to know scripture. We ought to be able to deploy it, to preach it to ourselves, to others, even to preach it to uh, forces that come against us. But that's not ultimately what this passage is about. We can see that by the way that uh, this passage echoes other events that we see in the Bible. First, again, as we've mentioned, we see Jesus... Encountering the devil here, as and this is a, a, an echo of what happened in the garden, where Satan tempted uh, Eve, um, and through her Adam. And when they were tempted, they succumbed, and as a result, the world fell. We deal with thorns and thistles, and you know the world groans in anticipation of being redeemed uh, when Christ returns. Uh, so we are living with the consequences of their failure at the beginning. But when Jesus encounters the devil, he succeeds. He resists the temptation. He prevails. The result of that is that this is sort of the first shot fired in the final battle where the effects of the fall start to get rolled back. It's a, it's a, a sort of redo of the events that led to the fall. And when Jesus succeeds as the the second Adam, the new, the final, the son of God, he is starting to roll back the effects of the fall. This is where the defeat of evil begins. Look also at where this is happening. It happens in the wilderness. If you know your Bible, that ought to remind you of Israel's wandering in the in the wilderness for 40 years. They did they wandered because they were disobedient. They refused to go up and conquer the Canaanites because they were afraid. And as a result, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is in the wilderness not because of disobedience, but because of obedience and because of preparation. It's a time of preparation for his earthly ministry. And also, while the Israelites were in the wilderness, they failed while they were there. They continually grumbled and complained against God. they refused, uh, they failed to trust him completely. Again, Jesus succeeds where they failed. He trusted his father completely. So yes, Jesus is our example. We ought to look to him Uh, to learn how to live the Christian life. We should follow his example in knowing and being able to deploy scripture. But there is more than that because he succeeds where others have failed. He succeeds where we have failed. And even better than that is that his success counts for us. Those who place their faith in him are reckoned, are counted as having endured temptation and succeeded and lived a righteous life just as he did. So he is an example, but more so, more than that, because he accomplished on our behalf what we could not. So that's who he is and what he's doing. Last is why it matters for us. briefly what this passage means for us is is hope it means that we can have hope i don't know about you but i can tend to get tired of myself i get tired of falling into the same old traps that i've always fallen into of committing the same sins of ha- of falling into the same patterns that i always have And over the course of my Christian life, I've had victory over some things and in some ways. But, you know, a lot of the time it just feels like I haven't come very far. Maybe you can relate. And these are, it's with minor things. Uh, You know, why can't I get to work on time? You know, why can't I, uh, you know, respond to emails in a timely manner? small things but then big things too why can't i stop losing my temper why can't i love my wife as i should why can't i care for my parents or my siblings you know big things small things we sometimes just don't feel like we're making a lot of progress But there's hope for us here in this passage because Jesus endured what we endure. Because he was truly and fully man and he lived the kind of life that we do. But he did it without sin. Hebrews 4.15 says he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now you might think, well, good for him, but what does that have to do with me? He doesn't know my circumstances. He doesn't have to live my life. He doesn't have to deal with the people that I have to deal with. He doesn't have family problems, job pressures, mortgage payments. My car keeps breaking down. He wasn't married. He didn't have kids. He doesn't know anything about what I have to deal with. So when we think like that, we're drawing a pretty sharp contrast between our experiences and Christ's. The problem is that we have it backwards. We think that we can't understand uh, he can't understand our circumstances. The truth is we can't understand his circumstances. We can't understand what he experienced. We will never know the level of opposition that and temptation that Christ experienced. Think about it. The reason is that we are sinners. We've fallen before it doesn't take much to get us to fall again, right? One little push, a little opposition from somebody, Satan and his minions don't have to work hard to get us to fall once more. But Christ, though he was fully man, was also fully God, meaning that in order to tempt him, Satan had to unleash incredible pressures, the likes of which we cannot imagine. And Christ faced Satan when Satan was at full strength. Since the incarnation, Satan has been weakened. He's been bound. He's been dealt a definitive blow. But at this point, he was at full power, and he unleashed everything he had at Christ. We can't imagine what that must have been like. And we shouldn't think that it was not a real temptation either that it was just easy for Jesus to brush it aside. He was fully man. Hebrews says he was tempted. Now, we don't necessarily know what that means, but we know that it was a real temptation. It was not something that he could simply bat away. He felt the weight of Satan's temptations. And this wasn't the last time. He was, people tried to crown him king. They pulled him in all sorts of different directions during his earthly life. And before he went to the cross, he was, felt incredible temptation to find another way. He said, Father, if there is another way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. So in the midst of all that, Christ persevered. He died on the cross for our sins and was raised for our justification. And now forgiveness is available to those who place their faith in him. When he was raised, he sat down. He ascended in heaven, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And there he always lives to make intercession for us. Again, this episode means that we have hope. Because while Christ is interceding for us, he does it from a place where he knows what we're going through because he's experienced it. He knows our weaknesses and our frailty, and he can pray for us more passionately and effectively. And part of his ministry, then, at the Father's right hand is he sent his Spirit to be with us, to dwell in our hearts, to sanctify us, to help us break those patterns. And again, the spirit can do that because Christ has been where we are and he knows what we go through. So we have hope because of the certainty of our forgiveness, because of the uh, intercession of Christ, our great high priest, and because of the work of the spirit in our lives. This passage sort of encapsulates all the work of Christ on our behalf the, it, it tells us of the, the beginning of, the, of Satan's defeat and our final victory. And therefore, it gives us hope. If you've ever, ever been on a missions trip or in the military or any, any sort of extreme ex, uh, situation or experience, a lot of people who've been in those experiences, when they come home, they find it hard to talk to other people about those experiences because you just can't explain what it was like if you weren't there, right? Nobody can understand. Well, friends, I want to encourage you that Christ understands your experiences. He knows. He understands. And because of his work on our behalf, because he has prevailed where we could not, where, we, where he has succeeded, where we fail. We can trust in him, and we can experience victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. He has prevailed because he is the son of God, sent from God, who obeyed perfectly, who believed his father, so that those who have faith in him can be counted righteous, in him. So this is our hope. Thanks be to God. To God be the glory.